Well, good morning. Turning your Bibles this morning to Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Ephesians 4. The other day I was walking past the church library, which is located in the new Discipleship Center now, and I noticed one of the books being featured on the top was called Sandpaper People, Dealing with Those Who Rub You the Wrong Way. <laughs> uh, I'm sure I noticed the title because uh, of uh, the preparation for this message as we think about showing grace to one another. Uh, we are studying the one another's of the New Testament. We've seen there are some 60 times that we are, as a church, given instructions about our relationships using this key term, one another. Uh, you chose to be here. You chose to be part of this church family. But you didn't choose who else would be part of this church family. And so it's very likely that there will be people that, uh, if you get close enough and, and you build relationships here, that there will be people who will rub you the wrong way. It's even possible that you could rub someone uh, the wrong way somewhere along the line. But today we'll see that the faults and uh, rough edges are actually one of the key ways in which Christ is glorified in the church because there will be constant opportunity to show much grace, just like Christ. And that's the key phrase we're going to find today, that in, uh, we're going to look at three grace-based one-anothers in the New Testament. Each of them is then compared to the standard of like Christ treats you. Here's the three terms, bearing with one another, being kind to one another, and accepting one another. Uh, the first two actually are paired with the idea of forgiving each other as well. Chapter 4, Ephesians, uh, we'll look at verses 1 and 2. As a prisoner for the Lord, Paul writes, Then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient Bearing with one another in love. There's that term, bearing with one another. As we come to chapter 4 in Ephesians, it is the hinge point of the book. Uh, the first three chapters have explained how that we are saved by God's grace. Not good works, we're saved by grace. And that God then joins us together in what he calls the body of Christ. That we're like members of a body Put together, we are saved by grace to form this body. So grace is how we get to heaven, chapters 1 through 3. But then chapters 4 through 6 are telling us grace is also meant to transform the way we live with one another. God's grace becomes visible through our relationships in the body of Christ. It's not simply that God's grace is visible in the church Universal, because sometimes the word church means all believers, but that church never meets. The way God's grace becomes visible is in the local church where we actually see each other and know each other and relate together. I like the, sand, the sandpaper metaphor because uh, sandpaper is actually 
something rough that makes things smooth. It takes the constant abrasive motion of sanding to smooth out the rough edges of a, of a board or something like that. And likewise, God is going to use our natural faults to produce and require and then display his grace. The first thing we see is that this is an atmosphere and an attitude. This is a mindset of how we're supposed to think towards one another. There are two pairs, uh, grammatically two pairs of grace traits in verse 2. There is humility and gentleness that are paired together, and then there is patiently bearing with one another in love. So let's kind of take them. They all fit together in a package. Humility. Last week our focus was on this phrase, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. And we saw that basically the key element of humility towards one another is that I put myself under someone else and treat them as if they were more important. Regard one another as more important. In fact, we saw that the the example of that was also Christ because he considered us and our needs to be more important than him staying in glory. He came to earth and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So he is our example of being humble towards one another. Uh, that, is, that is a grace trait of humility. It'll, it'll, when you treat others as more important, it'll transform every relationship. It'll, it'll transform marriage. It'll translate, uh, transform church, work relationships, anywhere to be like Christ in that. Humility is paired here then with gentleness. Gentleness. Have you noticed how some people almost take pride in being blunt and speaking their mind and telling it like it is? And, and truth is good, but without a humble gentleness, it will damage relationships. Humility and gentleness like Christ. Then the next pair contains our one another statement. With patience, bearing with one another in love. So patience means it's a mindset, it's a long haul, it's, a, it's an approach to that person patiently, what? Bearing with one another. To bear with one another is basically this, to endure something unpleasant or difficult. It, in so many ways, bearing with one another is simply putting up with one another. It's a grace opportunity when you're annoyed by someone. This term bearing with one another does not automatically imply that the other person has sinned against us. It just means I need to endure something about them. It might be a personality trait. It might be the way they laugh or they crack their knuckles or their act so immature, they tell the same lame story over and over. Dad jokes. Teens need to bear with their parents on, on that. In love, why would you, why would you bear with one another through all these annoyances, bearing with one another in love? In other words, your love overrides. Your love is the default. You can probably think of something, I don't know, Possibly. If you're married, you can think of something annoying about your spouse. What do you do? You bear with that trait over and over and over. Right? Amen? <laughs> Don't say it too loud. 
You choose to love past those annoyances. But now then, there are times when bearing with one another does cross over into the issue of being sinned against. Come with me to Colossians, where we find the same phrase, two books forward. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians 3.13. Bear with one another. I'm going to read this from the English Standard Version. Uh, Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Uh, The same term, bearing with one another, but this time it involves forgiveness because there is some kind of true hurt. It is gone, it's more than an an annoyance. Uh, Your grace is now tested by a complaint. If any has a complaint against you. In other words, it's it's a legitimate hurt. What do you do? Well, in an atmosphere of bearing with one another, you are now prepared to forgive like Christ forgives. Now, our English translations sometimes don't uh, perfectly reflect the, the specific word one another. That's why I read it from a different translation. But the first part of verse 13, bear with one another, that's the key term that we've been, been focusing on that's used 60 times. It's actually bearing with one another. Some say each other. One another. And then the term forgive is actually the word each other. Maybe I'm splitting hairs, but there's a little bit of a distinction, I think. And that is that one another is always about a, a, a mutual, ongoing atmosphere. Bearing with one another. We just kind of all, that's the, that's the state of mind we have towards one another to put up with one another. Bearing with one another. But then sometimes, instead of it being an atmosphere and a general kind of a thing, it becomes very specific because now sin has, has, has there's been a hurt caused by sin. And so now we must forgive each other. And, and that, that is, you can't mutually forgive, you individually forgive. I need to choose to forgive you. You need to choose to forgive me because now there is something specific on the table. But it comes out of a general bearing with one another in which we can then forgive each other. How? Like Christ. Because it leads us, bearing with one another will lead us to forgive like Christ did at the cross. And he knew very specifically every sin he would have to forgive in us. And he did. I sometimes, I sometimes actually wonder, how, how does an unbeliever ever truly forgive? Now, there's many gracious people in the world, it seems. But how can you truly process forgiving a hurt against you if you don't understand fully the cross of Jesus Christ? How do you have the capacity? We as believers have the capacity to understand actual Forgiveness, because what happened on the cross on that very good Friday is that all of our sins were placed upon Christ and he paid for them. So there was, there was, there was not a debt unpaid. See, the thing is that, that I think as an unbeliever, you just are going to feel this weight of injustice. Someone has to pay. But as believers, we can understand someone has paid and all the sin of all the world ours as well as the person who hurts us has already been provided for 
I didn't pay for it. He did. And he forgave me. Now, I understand it because I put my faith in him. And so it's, it's applied and I can experience this. God's not holding my, my sins over my head if I've placed my faith in him. And, as, and as, as the cross becomes our wonderful obsession, it becomes truly logical that I would pass that on. Forgiveness flows downhill. Christ forgives me I can forgive the next person. Even when they don't acknowledge their sin, I can understand the forgiveness. I haven't acknowledged all of my sin. Christ forgave me before I understood most of my sin. But I can pass on freely I have received, freely give, as Jesus said. So the first grace trait is this atmosphere of bearing with one another in love and then when necessary, forgiving. Come with me back to Ephesians now. Ephesians 4. Again, but at the end of the chapter, 4.32. Bearing with one another. The second one another we want to look at today that's so grace-focused is to be kind towards one another. Be kind to one another and compassionate, forgiving each other how, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So again, there is this atmosphere of grace being kind towards one another. Now the context, if you'll notice in all through chapter 4, is all about our relationships. Uh, verse 29, don't let unwholesome words come out of your mouth. Verse 20, uh, 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God who's in you because this body that, to which we belong has been formed by the Holy Spirit and so the Holy Spirit is grieved in our, in our conflicts. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, verse 31. And, and keep in mind, this is, this is church truth. He wrote this to believers, actual people like you and me, in a church that actually met in Ephesus, and says this, this unwholesome talk, the, the lying, the, the, the grieving of the Spirit, and the anger and rage, that actually happens in these relationships. Church is messy, but it's a perfect place for God to deal with those unfinished parts of our life because stuff will come out in our relationships, but we can deal with it when there is an atmosphere of grace bearing with one another. And this important one now in verse 32, be kind to one another because this is how we begin to reverse. We don't just want to just continually apologize and forgive. We want to, be we want to reverse the trend because the Holy Spirit transforms us into a different kind of family than, than, than the world even understands. How do we reverse the tendency? Be kind and compassionate to one another. And then how do we handle it when there are inevitable offenses? Forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Kind to one another. Kind means gently pleasant. Gently pleasant, not harsh, stern, or severe. It's another grace word. It's, it's the kind of person you want to work with. It's the kind of person you want to be married to. If someone is seeking a mate, you know, whatever it is that might impress you about someone, if there isn't kindness, strike them off the list. This gen gently pleasant uh, grace orientation. I am so grateful that Open Door is a kind church. I think, that's, I, I think actually if, 
If God were to write a literal letter to open door, he would commend our church for kindness. Uh, meals, cards, affirmation, warm greetings, encouraging words. I, I, would, I think we are a kind church overall. Compassionate goes right along with it. Compassionate, uh, the King James says tenderhearted. Literally, the Greek says good bowels, in case you wondered. The reason, the reason that term is used is because it's, it's describing that you have a good feeling <laughs> towards one another. That you see one another, you see each other at Walmart, you greet each other, and there's just this, this warmth of closeness and friendship. So, so that's the atmosphere of grace, kind and compassionate to one another. That's the mutual thing. And then the inevitable happens. What do we do? Forgive each other as, Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness flows downhill. And we who have been forgiven can understand how to release Someone from the, from, the, from the prison that we would put them in or the prison it creates for ourselves to hold on to that unforgiveness. Are you a forgiving person? Do you hang on to grievances, resentments? As you would look around the room, as you would thumb through the church directory and names and faces, catch your eye? Does it cause your eyes to squint and roll? Palm Sunday breakfast, the next hour, would, would there be people that if you see there's an open seat next to them, you're going, I'm not going there. Or if your ABF is, is, is putting together meals for someone with a need, you're just not inclined to help that person then you haven't forgiven because you're remembering something. You're, you're holding on to something. You need to ask yourself, are you, is that coming from the spirit or the flesh? It, might, it can seem so just, right? But it doesn't come from the spirit. Forgiveness is an evidence, evidence of the spirit at work. I'd like to insert a little quick summary of a couple different kinds of grievances that need forgiveness. The two basic kinds are those that need to be confronted and those that do not. Does every relational sin need to be confronted? I hope not. James 3.2 says we all stumble in many ways. 1 Peter 4.8, quoting Proverbs 10.12, says love covers a multitude of sins. How healthy would it be if you're married? How healthy would it be if your spouse brought it up Every time he or she noticed that something in a word, something in a look, something in an attitude had a little trace of sin in it. Oh, that's sin. <laughs> Would that be good for your relationship? No, that's where the bearing with one another comes in, right? And so there are, love covers a multitude of sins. Plan on it. But some sin must be confronted. It's a very subjective line. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, Jesus describes what to do if your brother sins against you. 
And the assumption is there's something that needs to be addressed for some important reason. If your brother sins against you, go tell all your friends and get them on your side, right? (laughs) No, he says, if your brother offends you or sins against you, you go to your brother. So that, that changes everything right there because now it's a relationship that we're going to deal with. Sometimes, Jesus went on to say, there are sins that uh, are going to need verifying two or three witnesses so it can be handled. And sometimes the church needs to get involved. You want to keep everything private if possible. Sometimes there are things of a significance that the church needs to be involved in holding someone accountable. I think there are ethical sins. There are uh, abusive sins. There are moral violations that affect the whole church body or check, affect the, uh, the, the testimony of Christ in a, in, through that church body that, that need to be confronted in even a, a, a public sense. Yet it's interesting that even in those more serious cases, 2 Corinthians 2, Paul is referring to someone who has experienced this church discipline, who has repented and they said, don't, he says, don't, fail to forgive this person because we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. Satan will use unforgiveness. Satan will always vote for bitterness and hanging on to resentments. Don't vote with Satan because Christ forgave. Let's just just think through couple of reasons that we've looked at and a couple more of why we need giving grace. Why it's so important. One is to imitate Jesus on the cross. That, that would have to be uh, most important that we imitate Christ when we forgive. We need to consciously have that in our mind. The second we've just seen is that, be, that Satan wants to use our failure to forgive and he drives wedges and, and these things escalate and, and affect others and draw other people in. Here's a couple practical ones. Because sanctification, spiritual growth, is an ongoing process. We need to realize that the person who uh, maybe has hurt us is struggling and growing, and it may not be our responsibility to fix them. Because we we are in a process... Do you think that God has fully addressed every sin in your life? No, probably not. Have you noticed how, you you know, you come to salvation and and you realize forgiveness, and there might be some some major things that begin to change in your life, but then there's a process, and and then God, like, layers on an onion or whatever, keeps exposing, oh, I never thought of that. That's a problem with me, isn't it? So if we're in process... Don't you suppose God's in process with everybody else? And don't we need to be patient like God has been with us? He doesn't show us all our sin at once. Don't we need to be patient to see how God's going to work in someone else? I think as parents we do that real naturally. We understand that our four-year-old isn't really conquering all these things yet. And then, but by 14 we're expecting more. And then there's 24 and they're out of the house. And then some things still bother us at 34 and 44 or whatever. And, and we have to release them. But... There's an understanding, isn't there, that God is still at work and we pray that God keeps working in each of them. And so if, if, if that's the case, we need to be patient 
and wait for God to address some of those things that we are not, for which we are not responsible. Another one is this. Because we don't know what a person is going through. Um, again, parents are a good example of, of usually having compassion, knowing their own child's needs and bents. And, and so how many times do, does a parent feel like, you know, well, if only the coach understood my child. I mean, seriously. They wouldn't be so hard. The teacher, if, the, if only the friends would understand. And so parents have this natural compassion because they know their, their child. God has that fatherly compassion for us. Psalm 103, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Aren't you glad about that? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him, worship, worship him. He goes on to say, as far as the east is from the west, endless, so far has he removed our transgressions from us as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Isn't it incredible that God has this understanding of our weaknesses, understanding the process, understanding this is not excuse, sin, and God addresses sin. But this is a sense of grace that needs to cover our relationships. That sandpaper person, we don't really know what they've been through. Do, do, do we know the, the losses they have experienced? Do we know the abuse they may have endured? Do we know the fears they may be facing? As we get annoyed by someone maybe in this body, you know, I'm sorry, but do you know what they've gone through? Do you know what's happening in their life? Have you experienced their hurts? No, we don't. And so it seems that is a reason why, like our Heavenly Father with us, we need a boatload of grace towards one another. Bearing with one another and forgiving. Being kind to one another and forgiving, like Christ, like Christ. There's one more one another. Turn with me to Romans 14. This grace-based one another is very simply accept one another. It's a bit different than the bearing with and the being kind and forgiving because there's a whole realm of struggle relationally that is about non-sin issues. It's about convictions. Differing convictions have been the source of much conflict in churches through the ages. Issues that are not sin that become sin because of a failure to show the grace of accepting one another. Chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. So what is this issue? He's describing an atmosphere of grace using a negative term, stop passing judgment on one another. What could be going on in the church of Rome that would be causing them, creating this sense of judging one another that he's addressing? We'll go back to verse 1 of the same chapter. Starts with the word accept, accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on 
disputable matters, so you may have the term doubtful things or opinions. Like what? Verse 2. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. Why? For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. So it doesn't state specifically why some Christians were vegetarian. Uh, but since it was a spiritual conviction for some, it seems to be, and I, I think it's connected with 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, which describes the meat in the market situation. Um, in these pagan cities of the New Testament era, basically all the meat, probably maybe all the meat you could buy in the market on a given day, fresh meat, was actually offered to idols early on. So that was their practice. You'd make the sacrifices at the pagan idolatrous temples, and, and after you made the sacrifices, then the meat is transferred to the market. So in the marketplace, you're buying meat that had been offered to idols. Uh, for many Christians who had been saved out of idolatry, you can imagine, at least for some, the idea of eating meat offered to idols was repulsive. Because basically that's how you could get your supply of fresh meat. Some, it seems, had decided to simply be vegetarian. Just forget meat altogether. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to face that. I'm just going to be vegetarian. It's even possible that Daniel, in the Old Testament setting, where it says he would not defile himself for the king's meat, had these kind of uh, qualms about that. Other Christians had the view that meat was meat. Meat is not spiritual. Meat is not idolatrous. Meat is dinner. And so, actually, Paul will later on in the chapter make it very clear that he agreed with the second view, personally. That uh, if you feel free in your heart to meet it, eat it, it's just meat. Go ahead. But he then describes a second principle that comes into play. Though you might feel free to eat meat offered to idols, but you are in a setting with other Christians who do not feel that freedom, what do you do? And Paul says, then don't eat. Don't eat. Why, why do something that's repulsive to your, to your friend? Paul's words to people on both sides in verse 3 are very clear about our attitude. Don't look down on the other guy, whether it's because they have the freedom or because they have the limitation of their own freedom by their conviction. Don't look down either way. Go to verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each person has to do what they think God is guiding them to do on these non-sin issues. So therefore, verse 13, stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make it your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Uh, verse 15. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Don't allow what you consider good to be spoken of as, as evil. Uh, verse 19, Therefore let everyone make effort to do that which leads to peace and to mutual edification. Verse 21, It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that will cause your brother to fall. So he says, Extend your grace a long way out so that you don't cause someone to stumble because of your sense of freedom. Don't act superior 
because you avoid what you think is wrong and don't flaunt your freedom and become a stumbling block offending somebody else. Show grace both ways. Meat offered to idols is not an issue today for us, but what is? We have different convictions, of course, in this room. Some Christians feel a freedom to uh, drink alcohol in moderation. Some choose to have no alcoholic drinks at all. Some would feel, as parents, to have a conviction they should, they should homeschool their children or have them in a Christian school. Others feel total freedom to have their children in, in public schools. Uh, some are quite conservative in, in, in how they uh, dress, uh, how they spend, uh, what kind of entertainment they watch or allow their children to watch. Others are, 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 have a lot, feel a lot more freedom in, in dress or spending or, or uh, what they, their entertainment looks like. Now, sure, there's surely some extremes that uh, stretch beyond conviction to absolutes. Um, drunkenness is wrong. Do not get drunk on wine. Uh, watching pornography or much raunchy material certainly uh, makes sin unavoidable. It's important to have convictions. This is not against convictions. This is pro-convictions because convictions are how you're going to apply biblical principles in a way that is wise before God for you. And so you will need to decide you know, before the Lord, Lord, what, what should I do about this? My, my, my sense of your spirit is that I should or shouldn't do this, or I have freedom or I don't have freedom, but what would be best for my spiritual growth? What would be best for my, my impact on others around me, my children? That's the way we develop convictions. Are there ever times that we need to uh, set or discern convictions for others? It's called parenting. You have to make decisions. Will you let your child watch that movie or not? Go with that person or not? Can your daughter wear that little black dress out tonight? You know, you're going to make those decisions because you're responsible for some family convictions. Church leaders have to make conviction decisions. Um, they're responsible as parents, pastors, elders, I mean, pastors or elders. Uh, what, what will the church, church movie night, which, which, what do you show, what don't you show? And what, what activities, what policies, you know, what practices will, will be a part of the church family? Well, here's the important issue of grace. What will be our attitude towards Christians who differ on these areas of non-sin, freedom. How will you handle it when you're together with someone who doesn't drink alcohol and, and you do? Will you bring a keg to the church picnic? I'm suggesting not. <laughs> but even if you're going out to eat with someone, will you have that sensitivity to them? How will you handle it when you don't allow your children to watch certain shows, but their friends do, and do you let them, do you not? You are responsible to monitor and lead your family as your convictions are guided by the Spirit. But will you have an attitude of grace? And, and I think this, for parenting, this is a key one. How will you talk to your children about families with different convictions? Because our children will pick, pick up quickly if we have a judgmental attitude towards those 
who feel more freedom. That's called pride. And our children will pick up quickly if we have an arrogant attitude looking down on those who are more conservative. That's called pride. And so now areas of non-sin have just become sin. And we can so easily communicate that sinful attitude and proliferate that in our children, again, going either way. That's why we need an attitude of grace, which is described in the negative here in verse 13. Let us stop passing judgment on one another. We're going to chapter 15 now, verse 7, stated in the positive. Accept one another then. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Why? In order to bring praise to God. Accept one another. Christ accepts you. Imagine the wide variety of convictions that God deals with in his family. And if, if it is done with an attitude of humility and sensitivity and love to, to brothers and sisters in whatever setting, God is praised by people with a wide variety of convictions. We should imitate that. Accept one another as Christ accepted you. That again goes back to the cross because at the cross, he didn't add more rules. But then as a believer, we need to see our lives guided by his spirit. If someone has taken that freedom too far, God can deal with that. And if someone has become self-righteous, thinking that their rules make them more holy, God can deal with that. But here's the amazing, wonderful thing about accepting one another. It'll change your life when you can accept Christians with different convictions on non-sin issues. You can just relax and enjoy them. You don't feel the need to argue with them, defend them. You can accept them. You can, you can relax knowing that, that they are accountable before God for things that you are, if you're not responsible for them, you, you can release them and, more importantly, to enjoy them. Sandpaper people, hurts, conflicts, differing convictions. What do we need? We need to take our, our mindset back to the cross over and over. Forgive like Christ Accept one another like Christ so we can experience the richness that he intended for the body of Christ to have. Distinct in the world, a testimony to the world of how relationships can be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are recipients of your grace all the time. We thank you going back to our understanding of the cross that you have provided the full payment for our sin, settled the eternal score forever, offering as a gift eternal life if we simply put our faith in you. I pray for any who has not placed their faith in you that they would understand grace starting at the cross and take the free gift. Then, Lord, I pray that we would be dispensers of grace, that uh, we would walk worthy of our calling, having been saved by grace, to treat one another with grace. And may it start in our own families and church relationships that we demonstrate your character towards one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.